Welcome to Lectionary Call-In for Tuesday, May 2nd of 2023, where two laypersons, a pastor, and an academician gather each week to discuss the Gospel Lectionary for the coming Sunday. Today we're gathering at 6.30 a.m. And for our friend Charles Willard in Minnesota, he's not with us today. We look forward to having him back soon. This Sunday is May 7th. We're working to be faithful to year A, and here's how it works. We prepare independently in advance of the discussion after receiving some formative questions from the week's leader. And then in this podcast, we share, question, and challenge each other. And here are the folks joining us in today's conversation. Bill Hall, St. Petersburg, Florida. Sarah Mickelson in Tampa. Don Upton, and I'm traveling in Columbus, Ohio today. Hello, everybody. And our lead we're so thankful for this. And Sarah Mickelson has put some questions together and is also going to read the scripture that we're focused on for uh, for this Sunday. Hello, Sarah. Hope you're doing well. Good morning. Um, I want to say a moment before we jump into the scripture that we received a question from one of our listeners, and it, we thought it was a really good question. Um, so the question is, Sheepfold Gate and Gatekeeper, which are from last week's story, last week's pericope, would have become would have been a common image in first century Middle East. What imagery would Jesus use in today's world or in the 21st century? Um, you know, I thought about this and I came up with maybe classroom, school, and teacher. Um, Don, do you have any thoughts? Well, I... I just love the question, and we had another listener that affirmed it and said, "Please raise it for everybody." So it had a ripple effect as well. Uh, I think I think I don't know if I have an answer to it because I it's good that we we struggle with these questions, but I think it raised the question for me about do we how hard do we work to make something seemingly accessible versus what Christ's truth is intended to be with the examples that He provided two thousand years ago, and so that question put me in a position to struggle with those two things. Accessibility of a character, an object, how personification is used versus what is the truth of this? And it is this cut to the truth as well. And it's it's kind of going to be a, a, a guide or a touchstone for me. I will remember this in the weeks to come. Thank you. I had to intercept a dog. What about you, Bill? Uh, briefly, I, I'm delighted at the question. I think it gets at the heart of what this podcast is about. It's to engage in uh, more questions than uh, coming down with an absolute answer. I like your illustration. I think it illustrates what I tried to say last week, that all communication is analogous. It, it's like this, it's, but it's more than this. And so... While I don't have a better answer than yours, Sarah, and I think your image is good, I am excited that this podcast engenders that kind of spirit. I agree. It, it's good to ask questions. Okay, that leads us to today's passage. We're in the book of John again. This time we're in the 14th chapter, which is a part of what most people would call the last, um, the farewell address. Uh, The setting is the Last Supper. Um, Judas has left the room uh, after being um, told to do what he must do. And um, so we now have a dialogue between Jesus and the balance of the table. 
And the story goes like this, starting with verse 1. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself so that where I am, there you may be also. What sweet words. And you know the way to the place and you know the place you know the way to the place where I'm going. Thomas said to him, "Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way?" And Jesus said to him, "I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you will also you will know my Father also. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him." And Philip said, "Lord, show us the Father and and we will be satisfied." And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you all this time, Philip, and you still don't know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own, but that the, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. And if you, do, if you do not, then believe in me because of the works themselves. Very truly, I tell you, the one who believes in me will also do the works that I have done, that I do. In fact, will do greater works than these because I'm going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name so that, my Father may be glorif- so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If in my name you ask me for anything, I will do it. And that ends the reading of our scripture. Um, I listened to the, uh, I'm trying to think of the name they call it, the, the, the recorded message of the pastor's meeting to discuss this passage. Um, thank you, Kenny. Thank you, John Ryder. And thank you, John Debevoise, who are pastors um, that participate at Palmasia Presbyterian Church. They recorded a, um, a study yesterday um, and it was delightful to listen to their approach. Um, and I found it super helpful. So some of the stuff you may hear, um, I generously lifted from their dialogue because I thought it was meaningful. Um, my first question this week is that this is a part of that conversation at the Last Supper. Prior to the crucifixion of Jesus. What's impactful about this passage for you? What do you got, Bill? Again, thank you for the question. Um, In the lectionary, as we have it, we are in the season following Easter, where we celebrated the resurrection. Yet, now we are led back. It's kind of a rewind to events leading up to the rest and crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And that may seem strange. Why, why isn't the lectionary moving on uh, past that? But uh, we focus on the gospel lesson. So uh, it, it seems to me it's a helpful reminder of the context in which 
the resurrection occurred. Um, it reminds us that Jesus's journey to Easter morning was through the loneliness of the garden. Disciples slept in staying, instead of staying awake God, while Jesus implored God to spare him. The mock trials, the scourging, the ridicule, being nailed to a cross and dying. Again, uh, all the Gospels deal with the humanity of Christ, but John particularly early on in his Gospel says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Um, And it's a reminder to me, Sarah, that even living in the light of Easter morning, we are reminded that Herod's and Pharaoh's still rule, Um, that um, it was cruel narcissism that led to Jesus's death, and that is still uh, alive for us today. Caroline Lewis, whose specialty is the Gospel of John, uh, she, of course, teaches in a seminary more than the John, but she's got a great commentary. And from an article she wrote about this passage, she says, quote, chapter 14 picks up with direct words from Jesus to his disciples about his impending departure. They are words of comfort and hope, promise and plain speech, and little mincing of words as to what's soon to take place. Um, so it, impactful. How is it impactful? It is, of course, as a pastor, I've used this hundreds of times in memorial and funeral services. And it offers reassurance that God is present in the midst of human evil, assuring us that there is a place in God's kingdom for everyone, no matter what their current life circumstances are. Um, I go to prepare a place for you, and that's both individual and corporate. That's what I have at the moment, Sarah. Thank you. What about you, Don? What's impactful about this passage for you? Part of what this has done, what we've done as a family of podcasters for, I guess, going on close to a decade now, is uh, to take the pieces that are recurring over three years and do it over and over again, but also do what I think the, 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 the committee that creates the lectionary intends, which is to put things back into the full place of Jesus, the whole thing. So if we pull this out and it's just the chapter and it's just the piece, like the lectionary says, and we look at it in isolation, it's it's familiar to me because I can remember last suppers. I can remember last last words, and last conversations, and we we I don't know about you, we meditate on those. And at my age, there's more and more of those uh, final conversations. Where was he? Where was she? What'd you talk about? So that's familiar to me, but it is also we've cut it out like with a pair of scissors and said, here's that moment, and we recognize that. But to do what I think lectionary intends us to do, you know, see see chapter one and John, the cosmic, because this is sitting in the middle of the cosmic eternal gospel. So you're at the table sitting with someone who's going to go away, and then you've got the cosmic beginning, the timeless piece. So with the troubled hearts language, 
what I'm thinking this year, Sarah, is that it, it is about now and the future and the past because it's sitting in John, but also the people at the table can think that way. The people that are listening to him, the now and the future and the past. It's a, a meditation on the whole. And where I think we all have something in common with this struggle is the uh, being in a place of lostness. I think even at the table, there's fear and lostness and seeking. I think hearts are troubled right now. If you go into the literature, hearts are going to be troubled. Hearts have been troubled. There's, this has been a rough rough mission. But it's all there. And I, this year, am taking away what how personal this is for the person sitting at the table going, what about me? What about me? And the cosmic Christ is talking about the weight of loss. And I think this is just me equating that weight of loss with the same weight or the exhaustion of the search. Even if Christ says these things, and it is, we know it to be true, looking for Jesus shouldn't be exhausting, but it can be. I think it's a reminder of what's in people's hearts. Uh, it's, uh, it's recognizing that loss can go on, but that we all understand that loss and seeking itself and looking for meaning can create a sense of hopelessness. And Christ is going there. See chapter one, in the beginning, in the beginning, in the beginning, and I'm going and coming to you, and all those wonderful things. It's a reminder. It's incredibly personal uh, for everybody. What about me? Don't you know that I, I'm going to look? I look for love. I look for Christ. And I think this is Christ going. And that, that I'm going to make sure that is not equated with lostness and hopelessness. I think if you put this passage back into John, and I've never really focused on those things. The question's been very helpful to me, Sarah. Thank you. Uh, that's that's what I'm taking away from it this, this year. It it strikes me that this is a, a road to Emmaus moment. That the lectionary people, whoever selected this, whoever puts this in play after we celebrate Easter, is walking us to Emmaus and back again by bringing us back to scripture that prior to the crucifixion we didn't have a we didn't really have a bead for we didn't have a, a a place to connect it to and so suddenly we're in, we're exploring these things through the lens of resurrection again and i think that's kind of a nice expression to me that we learn to value these stories differently than we did before the experience of the crucifixion. So that would be like in, in thinking about why did why would the lectionary people have us go through Easter and then go back in time? Like because that's what you do. You when when you experience this kind of loss, you go back and you remember things and you put things together that you hadn't thought of before. So that's my first thought. Second thought is um, that there's this interesting intersection in this particular passage, a tension, if you will, between the metaphorical and the literal. And that this, this questions that are brought forward and the story that's given to us is an opportunity for us to start to knit some connectivity between the cosmic, the metaphorical, and the reality of where we are right now living 
And I think um, that that has me considering that Jesus had separated himself physically from God and was wandering the earth, doing, doing what he was meant to be doing. And his wandering has been deliberate since he left and headed toward Jerusalem. And we are at the culmination of that reasoning and that perspective of why he's here. So metaphorically, we've been walking with Jesus to Jerusalem to this moment, this very moment in time. And there's about to be a reunification for Jesus and a separation for the listeners and for the people who are participating in the storyline. So there's this tension between what's physically happening right here and now and what's happening on a larger scale and a larger sphere of, of meaning. Um, so that, for me, this particular passage walks me to that tension and has me pay it, to, it has me look at it more closely, let me say it that way. Um, and I think that's what's impactful for me, is that it invites me to reconsider different aspects, but all towards the, that end, the tension between what's meaningful in a great way and what's immediate right now. So my second question, and this is, you know, the, I would say this is the low-hanging fruit in, the, in the, the phrase, this particular pericope, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's, that's the I am statement in this particular pericope. Um, so how do you uh, hear and understand these words? I am the way, and in the Greek it's hodos, I think is how you say that. The truth, which in Greek is aletheia, and in Hebrew would be emeth. And the life, which is Zoe or Zoe, um, how how are you? How do you hear and understand these words? And this is, you know, an ever-changing perspective. I'm only going for today's meaning and today's understanding of it. What do you got, Don? Well, I, I got that. I wanted to spend more time with the Greek because it, <laughs> it, it does open up. Uh, and I'm not a Greek scholar, but it does open it up. So I think the question, if you're if you're Moderating a class or teaching a uh, having a round table or something like that, do what Sarah did. Is put the dare everybody to dig a little bit into the Greek. It, it opens the words up. Uh, whereas for me in the 21st century, they kind of locked in and they flow more like water. They really do. So this, this is again, I'm not a Greek scholar, so th this is my personal interpretation. That when you look at way, uh, we're looking at the mechanism of the way, the travel, for example. We're looking at today geopositioning. We're looking at directional thinking, the way to, the way to San Jose, if you know the way. Behaviors, travel behaviors, because you have to do certain things. And the map itself, the way. The second, okay, so that, and then on truth, looking, looking at these words, meaning, facts, but also not hidden, facts disclosure, not seeking, right? I'm looking, not looking for the truth. It's the truth, the fact. The, I'll use apocalypse in its broader sense. It's revealed, uncovered. It's an apocalyptic truth. It is. It's closer to I am. I am. And then the final one, life, uh, not, not, as a reminder, it's life, not just information, Biological, uh, add life to the chemistry, add life to the math. It's all together. You're supposed to mix these up together. Don't forget, 
you've got the way and you've got the truth, got to add a pinch of lies here to make it all come together. And there's this thing we all of a sudden are having about the totality of the gospel, don't we? Don't forget the life and the chemistry. So the example I came up with, I was listening, was I was traveling on planes yesterday. I was listening to someone talking about midway through their brilliant composing career, songwriter, performer, this person learned notation because they wanted to do more. They wanted access to other musicians. They wanted to think more clearly. They wanted to pass things to a broader set of people. And so they learned notation. So I'll just say the way notation on paper, the truth, the performance, I read it and I perform it. You'd think that might be the light, but I don't think so. I think you perform it. And that is the truth, the truth of the notation. The life is that you've been to the performance and you have, you have a spring in your step to the meter that you heard. And now I've heard the composer compose 100 songs that I've listened to over and over in my life. But I'm not listening to it now. I can play it in my mind today. I can hear the lyrics in my mind today, the life, the life. I'm not sitting in a concert hall listening. I'm walking about life because it's a part of my heart. It's alive. It's alive. It's in my brain and in my heart. So that was just a personal example. It worked for me. Notation, performance, and then what is it's vested in me. It's an imprint. You're going back to sheepfold. It's imprinted in my heart because mm-hmm. it's steps of place. That's what I've got, Sarah. Oh, I like that. What about you, Bill? How do you uh, hear and understand these words? Um, I will also uh, disclaim that even though I took Greek in college and seminary, I am not a Greek scholar. There's much more I need to know. Uh, way may also be interpreted as or translated as road, meaning there is a defined pathway if you're traveling to Emmaus, there's a path or a roadway or there is a way that we live our lives. And the problem with this can be that it becomes exclusive. And I appreciate the number of scholars who urge us to understand that Jesus is a pathway, a way, but not to play God and use this to exclude people from God's love. As Caroline Lewis says, why don't we leave salvation to God? God is the sovereign one. It reminds me, Sarah, that elsewhere in Scripture it says the way is narrow. Not every behavior, attitude, or expressions of the Spirit of Christ. Jesus says love your enemies. That's a narrow pathway. Go the extra mile. Give an additional piece of clothing. Share your food. So it, while I, I applaud the avoiding of exclusivity, <clears throat> in a way it is, not there are, <clears throat> not that any of us perfectly live <clears throat> the spirit of Christ, but the way of Christ excludes many behavior <clears throat> truth. I, I like to think of that as how John uh, 
says in chapter 3, God loves the world. Not a part of the world. Not some people. Not just the good. Not just those in power or those who see themselves as favored. The truth is that I sense in Christ that God loves the world. And life, it goes back to last week. What Don uh, helpfully reminded us that we're not to stay in the sheephole. There's an in and out. The gate opens both ways. We are to go out there where there's pasture and risk, where there's nurture and and danger. So abundant life is has to do with trusting God and seeking to live in and be guided by the Spirit of Christ and believing that the abundant life we experience, no matter what our circumstances, is the life that God wants for others, especially those oppressed who live on the margins. So I dug into the Greek, too. I went digging in the lexicons to see what all this might, how it might open up um, for for the reader and for the person who's making the study. And I bumped into the Greek word for truth as well. Um, so for me, the way becomes a process, a method by which I approach all that I do. Um, it, it's also a commitment to walking behind someone instead of in front of someone. So for me, it's important to acknowledge that the way that I walk or the path or the process that I follow as I live my life, I'm modeling it after Christ. And some days I do that really well, and some days I fail greatly, um, or I should say spectacularly. So for me, it's a commitment to a process um, and not specifically to um, one door or one gate, or one perspective, that it's about understanding God's reaching toward me on a regular basis. And then for truth, um, Don, I'm going to put it out there. You often say this. In a bit, later from this passage, we're going to hear Pilate ask, what is truth? And in a time where um, I would say social media and and, and um, opinion news invites us to explore what truth is and what truth is not on a regular basis. I think we're here at this particular moment to ask that same question. And the way that these words unfold for me when I looked up the Greek and the Hebrew, um, the the way these words unfolded for me is that truth is proven trustworthy. That's how we understand it. It's something that's proven trustworthy, um, which means we have to move forward in faith and and then explore what that means. So this is the whole truth, the beginning, the middle, and the end, to lift up that Hebrew word that's composed of the beginning letter, the middle letter, and the the last letter of the alphabet in Hebrew. Um, The beginning, the middle, and the end, um, something proven to be trustworthy and true time and time again. Um, so I also want to say thank you to Angela N. Parker, who wrote the commentary this week 
on workingpreacher.org on this lectionary passage, and it was such a rich commentary for me. It just like I, I it felt like a home run. Um, she explores the varying definitions of truth. She cite, citing truth as defined in many lexicons. She reaches out specifically to the lexicon of Lindell uh, Lindell, uh, Lindell Scott, and she presents us with an understanding of truth as an event, a realization of a dream or an omen. And she then connects that to Maya Angelou's um, poem, Still I Rise. And she specifically points to the line in that poem that says, I am the dream and the hope of a slave. Professor Parker asks this question, is it possible that Jesus, as the truth of God, represents the dream and hope of God? I really like that. I really like that idea because it leads me down a different path and it opens up this whole passage for me in a different way. And I thought, thanks to Paul and his exploration of what it means to be adopted and what it means to have kinship with Christ, it made me think, what am I? Am I the dream and hope of God? And that was an even bigger question that led me to the better understanding of life and that life is not simply existing. Life is relishing and thriving with joy in the world that God has crafted for me and for the people around me. Um, and it's my ability to be a steward of that and to bring joy to others. So that's how I tackled this particular passage. And I have to say, this is my favorite part right here. Okay, last question. If the truth of God is learned best through faithful action, how do you understand the relationship between faith and action? Again, you got to leave the sheepfold. So for me, um, I'll sum this up with a quote from St. Teresa of Calcutta. Wash the plate, not because it's dirty, nor because you were told to wash it. Wash it because you love the person who will use it next. What do you got, Bill? I hadn't heard that quote. Uh, if I could speed write, I would write it down. I hope you'll send that to us. I, I love that. Um, and it gets at what I would, would share about this. Um, faith and works. We as uh, reformed people theologically, uh, salvation by grace alone, it is a unmerited, unreserved gift of God. Amen. And it leads to actions. That's how I resolve it. It's not am I saved by works or am I saved by grace? As I heard as a child, maybe simplistically, we are not saved by works, but we are saved for works. And that has been imperfectly lived out by me, but a touchstone of my life of faith. How does my behavior, is it in any way congruent with the spirit of Christ? Again, the narrow way um, for me, uh, it, it's a reminder that the Gospel of John describes often 
what Jesus does as a sign. And what I take that to mean is, yes, that feeding of thousands, that healing is important in and of itself, but it points to so much more. Uh, and that, for me, that's why I'm excited to be a part of this podcast team because something more. I will show you yet a more excellent way. There's more meaning here that I have yet begun to understand. And so um, the, for me, it stresses the importance of salvation. The grace alone is a gift, thanks be to God. But how is Bill, Sarah, Don, others, how is that faith uh, being lived out? Um, and it's a reminder that while we still live on earth, we are called and commanded to engage in the work of justice and compassion. One of the other lectionary passages for this week is from Acts chapter 7, where stone, Stephen is stoned to death, the first recorded martyr after Christ. And I will read the last two verses of that passage. While they were stoning Stephen, he prayed, saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out in a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he died. It struck me for the first time how that echoes Jesus on the cross. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Into your spirit I commend myself. So Stephen was doing the works of Christ even in his moment of death. And the Gospel of John ends with Jesus being present to those who had recently failed him. He's at the seashore. He helps them accomplish a great catch of fish. He feeds them, offers forgiveness, and commissions them to do God's work on earth, and then says, follow me. So uh, even as I say this, it sounds a bit rambling, but I am excited that Jesus stressed noticing the works he did and amazingly says his disciples will do even greater works. I have no idea what that means, Sarah. That's the subject of a whole other conversation. I agree. <laughs> what do you think, Don? You get final word. Um, um veering a bit listening to both of you uh, and my answer, so I'll do the best I can. Two starting points. One would be going to the tomb where folks were going to memorialize their lost leader in time, which would probably be a roster of works, good things, learning, healing. I think about people I've known in the past who parted. I could make a list of works. And I'm, I'm not trying to lessen that, but Jesus is alive. Work, the works are the works are alive, uh, and I, I was thinking about that. That I, I don't think this is about the list of the dead work or memorializing or my list of works looking like somebody else's. I think it's about working or worksing. It's not works. It's worksing. <laughs> what, what are we doing right now? Uh, and I, 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 John, especially, I think sets that out in terms of the, 
the cosmic Jesus. And the other is, Sarah, you you'd mentioned, uh, you know, that piece I like a lot from Pilate, which is what is true. And combining both of your comments and thinking about a poet my father commended to me, it's not what is true, it's how is true. How do we go about truthing? How do we go? How is truth? Truth is set. Jesus in the opening John is Jesus, and when the beginning was the word. But how is truth? And the reason I'm using the word how is I think both of you actually use the word. And it reminds me of the book my, my dad just loves so much, a, a textbook on poetry. It doesn't say what is a poem. John Chiardi, the author, says, how does a poem mean? How does it go about meaning? It goes to the notation I was talking about, you know, or meter, or how, how does that? You know, what's it, there's a truth here, but it's the how. And I think that's where we're caught up in this. Uh, I can generate an idol or a god. I can, I can do that out of my own heart. I can focus and I can obsess over something that's godlike to me. But the kind of faith I think that's being talked about here doesn't generate a god at all. Not this god. Anyway, this faith does not equal God. Uh, but I think if we put with the faith in the work, it's an elaboration of, you know, not what is truth, but how. How is truth exhibited not on a piece of paper in the past, but now? So I think the, the term faith may be really distorted in the 20, 21st century, 22nd century now. I think it's distorted. It seems to me faith uh, in the book of John is alive and active and it's got a, it's a dimension of existence that it goes on. Not that things in the past don't matter, but it's all the now and the future. And so I would say, like, my confession would be, well, without faith, I cannot see. I, without faith, I cannot listen. Without faith, I cannot serve. Without faith, I cannot pray. Uh, I, I, I don't. Oh, and going back to our earlier discussion, I will not speak in lines or tropes of hopelessness which Jesus was very concerned about at the table, the hopelessness and the lostness of what's happened and what's about to happen. I, I know folks have said, you know, faith and, and work is a way of life, but I think there's something bigger or a better way to say it, which would be uh, works are the pursuit of life. It's the natural pursuit of life. And so it's working, and now I'm really going to distort English, but it's faithing. I'm in the business of faithing every day, and I'm not generating any truth in that. I'm elaborating on the truth. I'm saying how truth go, takes on meaning, and it's with the body and the blood and the contacts that we have every day. It's a there's a a new and uh, beautiful simplicity about about these coming together. Thanks to your question, that's it. Uh, we're we're just about out of time, but before we go, let me just just. Just look around and see if there's any follow-up comments or closing statements from either of you. You know, you can read about how to play tennis. But until you actually play tennis, you don't understand it. You can read about maths. But until you actually do the maths, you can't, it doesn't connect. So I think there's something kinesthetically that's valuable about working through the truth and the truth revealing the facts to us. So I'll just add that, that I think the doing part of it amplifies the gift of truth. Yeah, add, add life to the chemistry. Don't forget, right now, life, people. Bill, anything to wrap up? 
Okay. All right. <laughs> well, uh, uh, thanks everybody listening and viewing for being with us. We always enjoy a reminder. We, we need your comments. We need your criticism, your counsel as we go uh, down this lectionary walk. Uh, Palmistia Presbyterian Church makes this possible. Uh, and this is for you. They make this possible for you, listener. And they're at 3501 West San Jose. That's in Tampa, Florida. And for more information, you can go to Palmacia.org. That's P-A-L-M-A-C-E-I-A.org. We always commend that site to you. Great music, sermons, discussions, often on lectionary too, differences of opinion, uh, prayers, um, meditations, opportunity to take communion. So check that out. Uh, and I want to let everybody know a little bit of change for the next four weeks. Bill Hall is going to be traveling. We will miss you very much, Bill, uh, and we look forward to having you back. But a heads up to everybody, Sarah and I, when I say there's two laypersons on this, always, uh, we will not operate without a net, and that means a seminarian, a pastor. And so in the coming weeks, it's not all determined yet, but we are committed to having a seminarian, a pastor with us, if not more, every step of the way. So you might meet some new friends in the coming weeks, and we're looking forward to that. And you're always welcome, and we'll see you next time.